you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, let's open them to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33. If you're looking at your clocks, don't get nervous. This morning, I will be delivering a homily, not a sermon. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with the liturgical church, I'm afraid I'm going to light my notes on fire. Um, (laughs) It's probably further away than it looks. But you talk about creating an exciting Pentecostal service. That would be... (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, I asked, uh, in in the liturgical church, they don't call it a sermon, they call it a homily. And I was in preaching class one day, and I asked my professor if he could tell me the difference between a sermon and a homily. And he said, about 20 minutes. (laughs) Um, So this is going to be much more of a homily then it is a sermon. That, that doesn't mean it's 10 minutes longer or 20 minutes longer, it's 20 minutes shorter. I want to read the Jeremiah passage. We actually read it this morning as part of our Advent reading, and I want to read it again, and I just want to share some thoughts from it for just a few moments of time, and then we'll spend the rest of uh, our time together um, fellowshipping, talking to the Brinkers, uh, clearing this place out, and then afterwards we're all invited, for those who want to, to the Christmas party across the way here at Paul Creek. So if you'd like to come to that, you can. Um, looks like there's plenty of soup over there, so even if you didn't bring soup, you might could crash the party. And uh, I'm sure that they would love to have you. In fact, this week I heard from them, and they, they were really hoping some of us would come over. So Let's read Jeremiah 33, starting at verse 14. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now this, is, this justice and righteousness is a two-prong um, uh, f- factor you see in the prophets. Righteousness being more of the practice of adhering to the to the Torah, to following the law, to following the commandments and the rituals and those kind of things, being a righteous people. Justice, on the other hand, is more of what springs out of that ordered religious life. And out of that ordered religious life, God expected there to be an ethic. Uh, An ethic that in the Old Testament, the theology of ancient Judaism and in the Old Testament, an ethic that would not just bring alignment to your, your, your soul and your life and, and, and your immediate family, but a connection that would spring forth and bring alignment uh, between heaven and earth, um, between, um, between God's desires for the world and what's actually happening in the world, if that makes sense. That's, that's what justice is. And, and when we read some of these Advent passages, and specifically the ones that come from the Old Testament, they're very laden with this language of righteousness and justice the ordering of the religious life, and then what flows out of that, that God is looking for both. In fact, in some of the prophets, like in Amos, um, the prophet says that God actually cares more about what flows out of it than just doing the religious stuff. 
In fact, doing the righteousness stuff, the, the following of the Torah and, and those kind of things, uh, if it's not accompanied with an outflowing of justice, God hates it, according to the prophets. He'd rather you not even do it. Just stay at home. But God is saying that in this text, he's going to ri- raise up a righteous branch, who we know to be Jesus, but we'll talk about that later. Spoiler alert. Um, in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. One more textual note here. This is actually something that is said earlier in Jeremiah, but earlier in Jeremiah, the Lord is our righteousness is the name of the branch that springs up. In this text, it's the name of the land to which the branch springs up in and delivers God's righteousness and justice. You know, Advent, um, let me say this, let me open up this way. Last week we talked about worship being a way in which we participate in the biblical story of God. And so one reason why we do Advent as a church is because it is an invitation to live in an in-between space for a little while, theologically. Uh, To put ourselves, some of you are there right now in life, but if you're not, to put yourself in a place of an in-between space where the answers are not always easy, nor are they always found, um, and where things aren't always resolved, where things get complicated, uh, where things get challenging. Because Advent is a time where we look forward to the coming of the Messiah, even though we know he has already come, but as a church we also believe, as we read in Revelation a a couple of weeks ago, he was the one who is and was and is to come. And so Advent is an invitation to live out that theology, that we are still waiting, we are still living in an in-between space. We are, still li- we are still living in a space in which there are some unresolved issues in terms of God's justice being fully realized here. God's full justice, God's full righteousness being realized here. In-between spaces. In-between spaces are not easy. In fact, they're never easy. But they are always formative. Now, whether they're transformative or not, I think has a lot to do with how we sit in those spaces. But they are formative one way or the other when we go through these in-between spaces. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are in an in-between space in your life. If so, this is a season that will certainly resonate with you. Perhaps you're in between something simple but stressful for you. Like right now, I know some of you are soon to be in between semesters in school. Uh, I have one of my students here. I'm sure he's looking forward to that. My, my daughter's in high school. Just the other day, we had this conversation of how she's at that state in the semester where she's excited it's almost over, but she dreads it because there's so much work to be done before it's over, right? And so she's in that in-between space of the semester's almost over, but it's not quite over. And so that's stressful. I'm sure we have other high school students uh, here that may be in that place as well. Maybe you're right now, this is, was always a stressful in-between time for me. Maybe you're buying, and sell, buying or selling your home, right? That is a super stressful time, especially if you're doing both and moving 250 miles to do it like we did. 
uh, it's super stressful to be working that and finding your place in those in-between spaces. Maybe it's just something as simple as starting a project and finishing a project that, that you love even, but you're in between that space. Or perhaps you're here today and you, there's more serious things in your life that has created an in-between season. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in between careers. Maybe you're in between a diagnosis and a resolution. Maybe you're in treatment. Maybe a loved one is in treatment. Maybe you're in between the space of deconstructing your faith and reconstructing something new. And that's a difficult place to be. Maybe you're in that in-between space of the loss of a loved one and whatever comes next, because I'm not sure grief is ever fully resolved. So there's that space of being between chapters in your life and not knowing exactly um, what's going to happen and what's going to take place. Just like apocalyptic times, um, in-between times are part of the human condition. I'm, I'm not sure if you've lived a life and if you've lived it well, that you'll make it through without having some apocalyptic times and some times of being in between stuff. One of my favorite poets of all time might have said it best. In his seminal work, Oh, the Places You'll Go, Dr. Seuss wrote, You will come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're dark. A place you could sprain both your elbow and chin. Do you dare stay out? Do you dare go in? How much can you lose? How much can you win? And if you go in, should you turn left or right? Or right and three quarters, or maybe not quite? Or go around back and sneak in from behind? Simple it's not, I'm afraid you will find. For a mind maker upper to make up his mind. So you can get confused that you'll start into race. You can get so confused that you'll start into race down long wiggled roads at breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space, headed, I fear, to a most useless place, the waiting place. For people just waiting waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or the waiting around for a yes or no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for the wind to fly a kite or waiting around for Friday night or waiting perhaps for their uncle Jake or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. I would disagree with Dr. Seuss that waiting places are useless, but I would agree with him that they are very complicated, and they are rife with questions. Where do I go? What do I do? When do I go? How do I go about it? And what happens when I move and the path is so curvy, I don't know whether I'm coming or going. That's what Advent is. That's what waiting spaces are. They're difficult. They're complicated. 
So Advent is a season in which we're invited not to resist. As a seven, by the way, I totally resist it. I'm like, it's painful. Let's not do that. Let's binge watch Frasier and forget about it, right? <laughs> um, let's do anything to get our minds off of it. But Advent is where we are called to lean into waiting places, not to look at them as useless and something we just have to get through, but to set in them, to be there, to feel, th- to feel the space, to touch it, to let it touch us, to experience the moment of being in between two things, as difficult as that might be, to find what might be forming in us. And we may not find answers in this place either, which I know in church we love like, you know, especially if you're raised in like evangelical, fundamental evangelicalism or something, we're all about having the answers, right? Uh, we want the Bible to have all the answers. But Advent invites us to those places where the answers are not so easily found. And sometimes where they're not even available, where there just are no answers. Our Advent readings as we go through this season will take us on a journey through in-between spaces. Um, And our readings will probably raise more theological questions than they provide theological answers for, such as our text this morning. Gary Charles uh, says, The stories of Advent are dug from the harsh soil of human struggle and the littered landscape of dashed dreams. He goes on to say, Advent leaves us dizzy over time. Advent is not a steady, constant, time marches on kind of time. A persistent drumbeat day after day, year after year. Advent is an unpredictable time, an unsteady time. In this time-tumbling season, we look for a baby to be born while we know that the baby has been born and is still being born in us. This Emmanuel who came and is coming and is among us right now. Not only is Advent not well-behaved, neat, and orderly, It contorts time. Given the nature of Advent, it is no surprise that Jeremiah is its herald. If you've read Jeremiah, uh, if you've ever started reading Jeremiah, you probably get about five chapters deep and go, man, this is like super depressing. And it is for about 30 chapters. It's super depressing. But the passage we're reading from this morning is actually from the final chapters of Jeremiah, and these chapters are often referred to as its own separate little book called the Book of Comfort. It's believed that this part of the book is probably uh, written during the exile. The first 30 chapters are Jeremiah warning the people that exile is coming, telling them why it is coming, saying there's nothing you can do to stop it, and Jeremiah went to some crazy ways to put that message out there. When we come to the close of this book, Jeremiah, who's also the author of Lamentations, which is also a sad but comforting book, Um, as well. There's good parts in there, good chunks of wisdom and comfort in there. But when we come to this, Jeremiah, this portion of it is written during a time when the people are probably no longer in their homeland. Not only are they no longer in their homeland, um, they're exiled, they're spread all across. The diaspora is now in full effect. They're spread across the land uh, underneath the, the empire of Babylon. They are under full oppression by their enemies in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. By the way, not everyone was exiled. The poor people were left. They only exiled the rich and powerful. Uh, The poor, so when you read like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they come from families that were probably political or priestly in nature. Um, All that's left in Jerusalem are the poor folk. There's no temple. 
to worship in. And in Babylon, depending on when this was written, uh, they are organizing the first uh, communities that will later be known as synagogues. That's where synagogues come from, is from the exile. That's the difference between a temple and a synagogue. A synagogue is a community outside of Jerusalem for Jews to come together and read their scriptures and worship God together. Um, so this is what's going on in the life of Israel, and this is the climate in which this text emerges. And it's a very simple message, and the message is this. God's going to keep his promise. God is going to keep his promises. The days are surely coming. By the way, that's a term unique to Jeremiah in the whole of the Old Testament. The days are surely coming. It's of a surety that the Lord will fulfill the promises he made to his people. Right now, it doesn't seem like it. Right now, they're as far away from the promises as they can be. Because not only do they not have the land, they once had it and lost it. Right? It's not even like they're in the initial stages of getting the promises. They had it, and now they've lost it. It's devastating. Yet, Jeremiah speaks on behalf of God and says, God will keep his promises. Now, I told you Advent's difficult because it raises a lot of questions. And when you're in an in-between season, that's not what you want to hear because it doesn't sound very comforting. In fact, if it's said in the wrong way, it can be quite offensive to someone. It's not helpful at all to just pat someone on the back in their pain and say, just hang on, it's going to get better. Right? And that's not exactly what the prophet is getting at here. Yet there is something about this blip of hope on the radar of our distress. God is still present. God has made promises. God will keep his promises. And this is a season in which we lean into that mystery of how will God keep his promises? When will God keep his promises? What does that even mean? When that verse rubs us the wrong way, how do we react to that? How do we sit with that in those seasons? It's a blip of hope. It's a call to believe that somehow, some way, God is greater than where you find yourself in life. And he will see you through it. That God is faithful, and that God is good, and that God is present. And so our task in these in-between seasons, knowing that God will do it, and as Christians, believing that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise, that God has done it, our task is to look for the signs in these in-between seasons that God still reigns. Look for the signs that God still reigns. But not only that. The church is not only called to, in this season, to look for the signs of where God reigns, but to plant some signs of our own of God's reign. To be testifiers, to be witnesses of this hope that in our difficult times and in the season we find ourselves in when we ask those hard times when we ask those hard questions to be those that witness to the hope of God that he is present these in between seasons they always end up leaving us with questions like where is God right where is he and uh, they call us to see God in places we don't always expect to see God Advent calls us to see God in places we don't always expect to see God. Like in a baby nursing on his mother. Right? 
how does that change the world? My daughter is reading Night, the novel by Ellie Weissel, right now, one of my favorite books. Um, and there's a story in Night in which a young boy, I think he was 12 years old in the story, was hanged by the Nazis for stealing some extra bread from the kitchen. And after a very vivid um, description of what the boy looked like hanging from a rope, Ellie Weissel shared that as he was in line, they made them march past the execution, by the way. They made them walk past and be close to it. A man in line with uh, young Ellie asked the question, Where is God? Where is God? To which Ellie responded by pointing at the young man hanging from a rope and saying, There's God. That God is found somewhere in the struggle between life and death. That it's in the mystery, that it's in the pain that we see God. Some of you may this week have uh, caught on Facebook or on social media a video of um, Steve Colbert being interviewed by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Did anyone see that, by the way? It was really good. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. And in the interview, for those of you who don't know, Tyson is an atheist, uh, a science, scientist and an atheist. And, and Colbert is a Christian. He's a Catholic. And during the interview, uh, Tyson asked him this question, said, uh, how did you come to reject evidence in favor of faith? Tell me how it is that you come to reject evidence in favor of faith. And Colbert immediately laughed and said, that's a BS question, first of all. But then he said this. He said, my faith is not related to evidence. My faith approaches a mystery. It's the things in life that have no evidence that call me to lean into the idea or at least the hope that there is something greater than myself and that there is something greater than what this world can prove to me. That it's the, it's, you know, this in Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I thought that Colbert's answer was like right in line with that kind of theology. Because in essence, he's saying that his faith is made of, it's, it's, it's the substance of his faith. What it's made of is, are things hoped for. That's what it's made of. Faith is made of things we hope for, what we hope for, what we long for. And it is evidenced by things not seen. It's not evidenced by things that we can see all the time, but it's evidenced by the things we don't see. And what he was saying was, these things that I don't see prove to me that I need to look at something higher and outside of myself, right? This is the proof of my faith, that the world is full of mystery. And I'm just not presumptuous enough to say that there's not something else out there to hold on to and look forward to. Faith exists because there are things that are not answered, not because all the questions are answered, right? Um, Andy Minia, he, in his, he's a Christian rapper, and, and he, in one of the lyrics in, his, uh, in one of his songs is, is that faith isn't having it all figured out. Uh, uh, faith isn't the absence of doubt. Faith is when I think I have it all figured out. Or, excuse me, 
Doubt is, faith is not the opposite of doubt. It's when I think I have it all figured out, right? That's when you don't have faith is when you think you have it all figured out. Doubts are sometimes good because they call us into mystery. Doubts can build our faith because they call us to explore those areas of our life where it's not black and white and where it's not so cut and dry. And it's in those places where faith is really forged, right? It's in those places where faith is really forged. And so this morning we're going to close our service by leaning into the mystery of the table. The table is a time in which we receive the body and the blood of Christ, and it's how we uh, experience God's presence together, one way in which we experience God's presence together. Theologians for years have tried to figure out, right, and put labels and names on what actually happens when we receive the cup and the bread. But at the end of the day, it's just a mystery. There's something about the receiving of it that invites us into the mystery of, of God's presence, even when we don't see him physically among us, right? So if you'll stand with me, and if our musicians will come ready, uh, will come and get ready. Um, we have a tight space up here this morning, so be patient and don't catch yourself on fire. Um, servers, I would suggest that maybe you step fo forward a bit so as folks come through, we don't knock the table over. Um, and just be patient as you come forward. I, it'll, it'll be a little tight, but we can make it work. Um, our prayer partners will be up on the right and the left. And You're invited to receive communion with us today. If it's your first time with us, or if you don't want to receive communion, that's fine. But the table is open to you if you would like to. Uh, we'll have prayer partners on either side of the front. And If you have anything you need prayer for, we would love to pray pray with you let's read the invitation together this is the table not of the church but of the lord it is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more so come you who have much faith and you who have little you who have been here often and you who have not been here long you who have tried to follow and you who have failed come because it's the Lord who invites you, and it is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.